Welcome to the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number four, we'll be talking with Polly Braden about negotiating consent. Polly Braden is a documentary photographer whose work features an ongoing conversation between the people she photographs and the environment in which they find themselves. Highlighting the small, often unconscious gestures of her subjects, Polly particularly enjoys long-term, in-depth collaborations that, in turn, lends her photographs a unique, quiet intimacy. Polly has produced a large body of work that includes not only solo exhibitions and magazine features, but also three books. Polly is a previous winner of the Jerwood Photography Prize and the Guardian Young Photographer of the Year. I guess if you could start maybe um, by telling me a little bit about your work. I, I've definitely looked at your website and you have some phenomenal work and you've, you've gained a lot of acclaim from a lot of your photography. So I guess if you could just give uh, the listeners a bit of background on what it is that you do. Yeah, so, well, um, I guess I started off, I went to LCC, which was called LCP at the time, uh, London College of Printing, and studied photojournalism as a postgrad. And then um, um, I went and lived in China for a year. Um, actually, I'd done that before. And I made a, a, the first body of work I made, I went and lived in a factory in China, in a shoe factory. It had 9,000 workers. But this was in um, two, uh, it was a long time ago now, probably about 2000. And then uh, pictures of China were very different to pictures of China now. It was still sort of seen as a bit backwards. And I really, um, having lived there, wanted to go and show some of these Uber factories with thousands of workers in. So the factory I went to, it made shoes for Nine West and Clark's. It was mainly all women working there. They'd come from Henan province up north. Uh, it was about 24 hours north. And I wanted to go and just show their life living in a, on, in a factory. And the women lived there. Um, there was a sports um, facility in the middle of the factory. They didn't earn very much, about 50 pounds a month. They often had to work long hours. But there was a sense of um, growing up there. It was a bit like a university. It wasn't a kind of black and white, smog-filled factory. It was quite modern, um, hard, only two weeks a year holiday. And so I followed this one woman called Hoping. And then I went back up north to her home for her two-week holiday. It was very kind of her to take me. And that's where my work really started. Um, I published it eventually in, in an Italian magazine called D Magazine, a woman's magazine. It was The pictures were sat next to pictures of uh, glamorous handbags, and it was very funny. And then um, I won the Jerwood Prize with that work, um, along with four other photographers, and I started working, really. And I like the format of sort of spending a good three, three, four weeks on a subject, not just jumping in and jumping out. But then, of course, I had to earn a living, so I did lots of work for magazines um, where you'd just go for a few days. But even then, it was still at a time where you could go and spend a decent amount of time on a story. It was for the 
like Telegraph Weekend magazine or for The Guardian, you'd get a couple of days or three days. Now you get barely half a day to shoot, you know, a five-page story in a magazine. So I found that what I wanted to do was to find a way where you could keep working on that kind of long-term basis, where you could keep going back. What you get from going back and going back is you make a document. For example, this is of Walthamstow uh, dog racing, but that doesn't exist anymore. So this becomes like... Um, you know, everything becomes a historical document with photography. But what I liked was being able to go back and tell the story of this area. And then I started making these, um, well, these two longer books. There's this one, uh, which is called Great Interactions, Life with Learning Disabilities and Autism. So I spent about two years working on this book, going up and down the country, visiting well, it was all via one charity called McIntyre, but visiting different people who McIntyre look after. And I'd go and visit them and I'd get to know them a bit, a boy called Mikey, for example. But then I would go back six months later and see how Mikey was getting on and photograph him doing something different. Sometimes I'd photograph the same person. Well, in the book, show two or three pictures of the same person a few minutes apart. Because often when you um, tell stories of people with learning disabilities, you get really stuck on the person just being one thing. In our minds, I think, with people with learning disabilities, we we fix them and it doesn't allow for them to grow sometimes. In society, we sort of, we say, oh, that's who you are and that's what you're able to do. And it doesn't allow for, and what Great Interactions was trying to do, this book was trying to say, no, people with learning disabilities, the same with everyone else, can achieve a lot of things. It might be that their achievement is learning to pour a cup of tea, but they should be able to do that. You don't have to pour the cup of tea for them. That is their... That's what they're able to do. So allow every interaction to be their own, to let them own that and let them grow and step back. And it might be that it's going to work. It could be that it's learning to dance, but that um, that's an important interaction and you allow that person to, to grow in your own mind so that then they can grow themselves. One of the, uh, a couple in this book, called Tessa and Mark. They get married at the end of the book. I'll show you the picture. And uh, both of this couple have a have Down syndrome and they'd wanted to get married. And Tessa and Mark, they, they've made the, those um, images are now like, they're all over their bedroom as cups and photos on their walls. And actually, I just spoke to Tessa's sister last week and she's not very well. Um, she ended up getting coronavirus, but hopefully she'll pull through. So I like the fact of getting to know people, spending time following and following and, and, and um, letting people grow in the, in the, you know, like showing people growing, um, especially if they have a learning disability. But on other stories, it's just to follow a story and to see what happens next and to uh, try to find time. I think um, time is something that I think comes up a lot in different conversations that I have with photographers and the importance of time and how many photographers are short on time and aren't given the time to do that sort of deep or longitudinal work. Um, what do you think is the the ramifications of that when we don't have the time to invest in a story in that way? Well, well I mean, I know that when I, you know, when I get to know about something, I, I might understand the very surface of it for a while, but to get down to the nuances of, of life, you have to spend time with people. So right now I'm working on a story about um, single parents 
91% of single parents are women. And, um, you know, we've been out talking to people so far. And I, I, I'm a single parent myself, so I know some of the nuances of being a single parent. But, for example, we went to Bristol. We've been speaking to um, the Single Parents Action Network in Bristol. Um, part of the story is about universal credit. So do you know that women used to have to go out to work when their youngest child, if they're on universal credit, when their youngest child was 16 during Tory, during Thatcher, and then it went down to 12, and then it went down to nine, and then it went down to five during um, the new Conservative government, and now it's just gone down to three years old. So when your child reaches three, nursery kicks in, and then you have to go out to work. But I bet you didn't know that you get 35 hours of nursery and you have to work for 40 hours to get your universal credit. Who would have known that from just not speaking to people? Another little thing is, so in Liverpool, we went up to speak to people in Liverpool and they were saying, you know, in Liverpool, it kind of works because family connections are really strong. So families help look after each other's kids and grandparents. Well, this is a very nuanced thing. So you have somewhere in Liverpool, you have a very family structure. People live close together still. In Bristol, there's less family structure. Often people have come from different places. They've ended up in Bristol. So you end up. So you need to know like the depth of every story. And to go and visit just Bristol or just Liverpool, then you'd miss this whole, there are layers and layers of a story. And, you know, people setting up charities or credit systems or if you want to try and be the person who's going to talk to those things you need to understand the depth of it and so that's what gets missed doing quick stories for for the guardian over two days or for, for another newspaper yeah no absolutely that makes that makes a lot of sense and i think another thing that um really struck me about sort of your your initial introduction to your work was the focus on not only nuance but showing many sides of a story or many sides of a person and showing, you know, trying to break the types of representations that are so embedded and and show something different. And I think it seems to be a real ethical imperative in your work to to sort of rupture um, stereotypes or sort of absolutely limited yeah. representations. Yeah. Is that, is that something you could speak? I think about? that's a good word. Limited representation is, is, is the thing that you tried to rupture. I, I mean, you can do it in sort of, they're small gestures in many ways, these gestures, because these are still photographs. They're not films where maybe you can take that further, but, but they are nevertheless gestures to help make you just, it's just to shift your mind where you might just fix someone. I I find that so um, problematic, the idea of fixing someone with a learning disability. These guys are a couple. They've been a couple for 12 years. They get on really well and they fight. And um, Caroline has Down syndrome and David has um, autism and other complications. But that's, it's a bit unusual actually to have, um, it's maybe not what the public would think to have someone with Down syndrome is often seen as someone being very cuddly and warm and someone with autism is often seen as someone being not wanting to be tactile or and here you have in that picture you have David sort of with his head on Caroline's shoulder he's the one being tactile so I don't know just trying to shift but I wouldn't have known I couldn't have taken a picture like that by going for one day when I might have got lucky and um you know just coming across it I, it, it took a year and a half of pictures <laughs> and then you end up with something good yeah talking I guess about developing a deeper understanding and a nuanced understanding and a layered understanding of a project. 
I'm kind of interested in, you were talking about um, photographing single parents and being a single parent yourself. I also was raised by a single parent. And how do you think that that informs your work coming from that experience mm. in your work? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm not on universal credit, just to just to say, and that, and that is, I would never want to say that I am the same, in the same group as this group that I'm photographing right now, in some ways, because being on universal credit on top of all the difficulties that these women are often faces, facing coming out of violent relationships, and then, um, you know, the added burden of feeling so insecure monetarily is horrific. But I do understand some of the nuances of having become a single parent, what that's like, the person leaving, what that's like, the children, the worry. I, I definitely understand and empathise with a lot, a lot of what, and, and the conversations therefore are quite open between me and the women that I'm working with in this, in this project. Yeah, so, and I think also I feel very passionate about it and that obviously drives the project forward. So in some ways it, it enabled you maybe greater access, but also greater empathy, but maybe maybe it shapes how you represent the situation of single parenthood as well. Yeah, and I think also um, one of the things I'm quite interested in in this project is about touch. It's interesting during coronavirus to think about touch. So sometimes I find myself just like um, spending time with another woman who's with their children and just watching those very... Um, natural but very you know those those little touches that mothers do and fathers too when they're around but in this case mothers those gentle little gestures so I watch gestures a lot and I find that really fascinating you probably have to spend quite a lot of time with these families in order to sort of get those quite private moments as well I would imagine yeah I I mean although it's interesting I spent some time with a brilliant mum called Charmaine um who has a very active ex-partner, um, but when she's with her kids alone, it's very funny. Um, the first time I met them, the kids were really excited, but a bit nervous and playing up. And by the second time, I could really just be there and they, they just kind of carried on as normal. So it doesn't take long sometimes. How, how long mm. would you generally um, like to spend, I guess, with one family um, or... Um, on a pro- longer project in general, like what's what's your general time frame? Would you say? I guess it depends, probably quite a lot, depending on the. It, yeah, it, it depends quite a lot on different things. I mean, ideally, what I really love is if I can go back over a year, um, because I love to see the, especially with children, you know, they grow up so much in a year, and I love in a in a photo essay if you see a child grow up, you know, from the beginning of the book to later on because it really gives you a sense that the photographer's been in there and has spent time. And so with a couple of the people, I will be able to, you'll see the kids growing up in the book. Um, because Charmaine, for example, I started photographing last summer. And um, we probably won't show it now till May next year. Um, but then some participants we haven't even found yet up in Liverpool. So there'll be a variety. But I mean, you know, if I had, if money was no object, I'd spend a good year photographing people. Have have you encountered in, I'm sure in the course of your career, you've encountered several ethical dilemmas, but I wonder if there's anything that you could maybe, any example of a situation maybe that you could point to and talk about how you dealt with it, or if there was any situation that maybe um, gave you pause and caused you to, to reflect on your practice. 
Yeah. Well, if I um, if I tell you, so I I work with vulnerable people. So for this book here, Out of the Shadows, it was about um, ten people who have a learning disability who have been through the criminal justice system. So for that book, we had to go through really rigorous plans of how we would uh, tell these stories. So, for example, one of the men, he lives in a long-stay prison still. It's a, it's a long-stay hospital, but it's secure. And, you know, he spent all of his life in secure settings. Now, when he comes out of the secure setting, he's moving into into a supported living house. If he comes out of a secure prison and there's stories about him all across the Guardian, and then he's moving into a house in the community, that might not be the best thing for him if we don't tell the story right. So we really, really had to think through what is consent in this case? Do they have capacity to give consent? Uh, do they understand the ramifications of being in a book, in an exhibition at the Midlands Arts Centre, and then being in The Guardian and potentially other press? Uh, Roy was in all of those things. He was in the press, um, on lots of different press. And so his story was really widely told. So we really had to think this through. So what we did is we used continual consent so that people could pull out at any point. We always spoke with um, the adults who were their carers, supporters, their responsible adults to think through what was right for them. One of the stories in this book was about a boy. We've changed a lot of names in the books. So one of the stories is about a, a boy who we never photographed. I've never met him. And we told the whole story through his mum. I'll show you a picture. So this is Margaret, the mother of one of the boys. And there's the only picture of, we call him Max. So the only picture of him is on the CCTV. You can't see his face. And then the only other picture of him was when he was a young boy aged, I think he was about 10 there. And now he's 25, so you wouldn't recognize him. So we told the whole story without taking a single picture of the boy in the book. So we told the story through not particularly beautiful pictures, but through the people who work with him, through uh, his mom and through documentation that we found. And we never photographed him because it wouldn't be right for him to have his picture in any of the press or in any of um, the museums. But for the people who did take part and, and chose to take part, what we found was they all came to the exhibition and we were a bit worried that they would be shy and wouldn't want to talk about um, being in the book. So we said to just two of them, Rodney, Rodney sadly died now. And um, and we thought, oh, they won't want to speak. You know, they might feel shy. But then at the exhibition, Roy gave a speech in front of his picture. And then each of the others came up and said, well, what about me? I need to give a pic I need to talk about my picture. I need to talk. So then we went around each picture. Each person stood in front of their picture and big groups came around and listened to their story. And uh, for example, the man that I showed you who had been in the locked facility, for him, he came and he said, I can't believe this. No one has ever believed my story. And now here it is in black and white and it's being believed. And it helped him really move on. He came and spoke at a conference in London with lawyers and police officers. He's given speeches at his um, secure hospital where he lives. We hope to get him to another exhibition later on. So it can give a voice to people, it can, but it has to be right. And it takes so much rigor. It takes getting through all those, um, we call them the, um, the key holders to allow us to go and photograph people. In the end, it's worth doing, but you need to have so much um, 
you need to be able to really go back and go back and have guts because there are so many key holders trying to stop you from telling these stories. And as much as they are really important to tell, bloody hell, it's so hard to get in to tell them. Um, I can imagine it's a big risk um, as well because you, there's there's a risk that you're going to spend months with somebody yes. for so one to of be the people in the book. Yeah, so one of the people in the book pulled out. In fact, it wasn't one of the people of the main people of the story it was a support worker and we had interviewed her and she felt that she looked fat in the pictures so she pulled out on the basis of not looking good which was quite disappointing but um you know I, it was up to her so often it's not the main participant but it's someone who thinks they don't look good who suddenly decides yeah and could you tell me about the example of Roy, um, you said that it was continual consent and it also involved a number of people who were involved in his situation, like family and care workers. So we went, so uh, what happened was we went to this um, long stay secure hospital called Brookfields up in um, West Brom. And we went in and we spoke to lots of people there. And then we heard Roy's story, lots of the people who are there and then we heard Roy's story and we were quite blown away by this amazing story. He had been working with a psychologist and so we spoke to her, she's called Nicola, and she's been really brilliant. So we spoke to her and we said, you know, he's obviously just told us an amazing story about uh, child sex abuse. He was abused as a child. Um, has he ever told this story before? He had kept this story secret for 50 years. He had only told a couple of people, no one public before us. We had to check all the facts because it turned out it was a big, um, the other side of the story, the person who had been the head of the paedophile ring um, had been locked up for seven years. So I mean, it was a, such a huge story to listen to. So we had to check with everybody that they thought, I mean, mainly with him because he has the ability to give consent. But we had to explain to him what it would mean to um, take part in a project like this. And he was very adamant that he wanted to. It was right for him. It was the right time for him. So, you know, we were pleased to be able to tell his story. And it worked out really well for him. There was another um, person called Rodney. So Rodney was um, living on this farm when we first met him. And we had made really good connections with the, with the place that he was living. But unfortunately, um, he got in some trouble on the farm. It was a secure farm for people with learning disabilities who are likely or have come out of prison. So they knew what they were doing with difficult um, people. But Ronnie is a big, big character and um, really wonderful and exhausting and uh, volatile and many, many things. He had never really hurt anyone in his life. He had set fire to the kitchen when he was quite young and had ended up in a string of different secure settings, including Winterbourne, the terrible place where there was so much abuse. And... Um, he was very volatile by this age in his life, but also great fun. And we had made really good connections on this farm. And so we went back to visit him several times. Occasionally we would turn up and he'd say, look, I don't want to see anyone today. So we would have driven all the way from London to Bristol, the outside of Bristol, and his leg was hurting. And we'd have to turn around and come back. And it was two people, you know, we needed to, it was a lot of money to waste, but we did that several times. And then he got in trouble and he had to move to a new secure setting. And the, the, we, we couldn't build a good relationship with this new setting. They, they didn't trust us or I don't know what they thought, but we were never allowed to visit him there. So, you know, you have to build relationships, not just with the person, but with the, the place that they're living, with uh, the whole community surrounding them. 
And and in the case of Rodney or Roy, if if one person in the in his support team or in his support network, if one person had withdrawn consent, would that have stopped the whole his whole participation, or was it was he the final word in in those? It depends on his capacity. So he's a grown man, Rodney, and it was thought that he could give consent himself. His parents didn't want to take part in the project. We asked them if they if we could take their picture because he was very close to his mum and we wanted to do a bit of him with his mum. She didn't want to. We worked with Bristol um, NHS who supported Rodney and they felt that he could give consent himself. But we still would have had to get consent to go into this sec- into this more secure place that he was sent to. And so we could get consent from him, but only in the setting that would allow us in. So, so he, in fact, the, the people who didn't let us in to the second um, home that he was sent to, the secure prison he was sent to, um, they actually ended up bringing him to the exhibition and they saw how amazing it was for him being in the exhibition. And then I think it was a bit of a shame that we hadn't managed, to, they thought it was a bit of a shame that we hadn't kind of managed to come in and photograph him. And, and right now, you know, trying to find women who will take part in this new project is a different kind of problem because now I'm asking for places to recommend women who want to take part in a project about being a single parent and allow me to come into their homes. And that's not really about vulnerable people in the same way because obviously all these women can give consent themselves. It doesn't need any other adult to give consent. But you still need the gatekeepers to say, hey, look, there's this great project to point people in my direction. And I don't know, I mean... It's interesting. Suddenly someone great comes up and it happens, but even it's always hard. It takes so much resources. It just takes up so much time trying to find people. Although you feel like you must tell these stories, these are big stories, they're everywhere. Trying to actually find people who take part is always hard. I imagine the gatekeepers as well probably feel that there's quite... Um, that if anything goes wrong, the onus is on them in a way, Absolutely. which, and, and I'm sure yeah. in some cases they have been burned in the past by pro- projects Absolutely. that weren't ethically executed. Absolutely. So what we try to do with each um, group is we try to work via a charity so that the person is always supported by someone outside of me. So for example, in um, in Liverpool right now, we're trying to work with a, a place called Blackburn House that supports single parents so that I can work with the woman. They can put me in contact with a good person, but they can always go back to Blackburn House and have support. So I think that's a really important point to say, actually. As much as gatekeepers are annoying, they are also the person who supports. In our emails back and forth, I know we spoke about um, fair, fair wages and free work. I guess I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit or could talk a little bit about sort of maybe how that's impacted your work or what your thoughts are, because I know that you said that that's a topic you've done a lot of thinking about. I mean, first of all, I suppose, you know, a lot of photographers spend so much time being asked to do stuff for free. I mean, I'm asked, I mean, last week I had three requests. I was asked to send some images from 20 years ago to someone. That means going back through all my files from 20 years ago. I was asked to um, give a talk to a, a young person who needed help via something else. So that was an hour conversation. I mean, these are all small things, but... You know, what I think myself is for me to do my work. So for me to work with these women, I make sure that I give them a, um, what do you call it, Um, stipend. And I have to raise money to do that. And I can't start the project until I've got money to to pay them. uh, You know, it's only, I give 30 pounds a day 
for, for food and drink or whatever, just so that people are compensated for their time. It's not a lot of money, but it's really important. And so sometimes it's not about the amount, but it's about saying this, you're not working for free. I mean, I don't know, in the arts, there's so much working for free and it's, it's not work. That's a hobby. I don't know what that is. I mean, you know, these things that sort of sometimes I think when you're young, you think, oh, I have to do all these things. It will benefit my career long term. And, you know, we all we, we all have to work for free, but I, I, it's really problematic. Do you think that, and I've, I've found this with my myself, I mean, partly because maybe I'm I'm younger and I'm inexperienced and I don't know how to assert my own value, I think maybe in some ways, but I feel like as women, it's also difficult sometimes to try to justify your own value. Do you feel that that, um, do you feel that, I guess, in your work? I, I'm, unfortunately, I totally know what you mean. And actually you wrote in one of your questions, what do you wish you had done when you were younger? And it's exactly that. That's what we need to do. We have to believe in our own value and assert ourselves and you really need to work out to get paid <laughs> it's really really imperative but if you learn to do those applications then you're building that skill and then you get you've got to do it and I've got to do it more and we all need to assert ourselves and get paid you can't work for free I wonder sometimes if the grant system though and I think maybe this is also my part of my hesitation becomes such a gatekeeper that it shapes the type of work that can be done. That was something that I really found at the very start of founding the Photography Ethics Center was that I was doing something that was, it didn't fit cleanly into any of the grant boxes. And when I first started out, I didn't know how to play the grant game. And I didn't know how to shape what I'm doing to fit a grant. I just kept looking at all the requirements and saying, this isn't what I'm doing. Like, this isn't, this isn't my objective. This doesn't fit. And I think that that also really turned me off of the grant thing because it dictates the potential for what can be. And I find that really um, problematic. I don't know how you deal with that or how you feel about that in your own in your own work or if you felt that. Well, I think, you know, one thing you can definitely do is you can find people who, who do know more about grants. So it was actually really useful for me. Um, I wrote the whole grant for... Um, the first grant so we got 15 grand from the arts council for the first part and that was to pay um participants for their daily stipend um the per diem that's what you call it and to pay writers and to pay for trains to go to that whatever you know it's not like that's going in my pocket any well, a little bit and i pay myself 270 pounds a day but then most days i don't pay myself so you sort of pay yourself <laughs> then you've got to do another application so there's no anyway but what was helpful was to speak to Museum of the Home once I'd written the application and to send it over to them and to get them to look through the whole grant application and to think through it. One thing I didn't really understand until more recently is um, museums have a tiny, tiny budget. So every time you show in a museum, you have to raise money with them, for them, for your show to go into a museum. If you're doing the kind of work I'm doing that isn't selling them. So they have done that a lot of times. So then they could help me like think through the application and, and write it in a very positive way and tickle lots of boxes. And in some ways, I mean, the type of work that you're doing and the type of work that I'm doing, it's for the public. You know, it's minor socially conscious photography. It's telling stories about people for people. What you're doing is thinking about ethics. You're not, it's not something where you're going to make any money. So you need to get money from grants. There will be money out there from grants for you because 
it's a public program thinking about ethics. You described your work as, as socially conscious photography. Um, I wonder if you could just maybe say a wee bit about about how you position yourself in that. So, I mean, I uh, my kind of photography is is trying to tell stories to raise awareness about things. I would have been shy saying that before because it sounds really boring and you know not very exciting. But the truth of the matter is that's what I do, and so I do tell stories about things going on in society that I want to shine a light on, and um, and things that are close to me. In this case, single parents, mainly women. So then the way that you you do that is really interesting. So the things which I find interesting within this um, kind of way of working are doing the pictures is great fun. I love it. I love the, um, finding ways to write the stories. So we'll find different ways to get um, the women to either. So with um, one of the women I'm working with is called Jana. Well, that's her nickname. And um, she's going to write her own story, I think, now. And then a writer might work with one of the other women and so it's trying to work out how we can tell the story. And then another part of it is now we're thinking of running a three-day workshop up at Open Eye in Liverpool before, um, in about November, December. And there we'll work with local women to try to find out what's going on. And then we'll go, we've been in Bristol, we've been having um, conversations with lots of different groups, including um, the Single Parents Action Network, which was a group, SPAN, it's called. It was a group that was set up 30 years ago. It's now disbanded, but there are some people researching the archives of SPAN. And it's trying to, like, what I love about this kind of work is you you have an idea, and then you sort of reach into the story and you find out what's going on in different areas, and you find out for the women in this case. And I love sort of digging down and finding all those things, and then going and meeting women and telling the story through them, through each woman. But then all these workshops that we'll run at the museums, how do you run a workshop um, so that women can bring their children? I mean, imagine if we had a, if we had an exhibition about single parents and then they couldn't bring their kids. That would be funny, wouldn't it? So thinking about how you then bring that into the museum, what kind of show you have, what time of day is the right time, do you need a table out? I mean, these are simple, small gestures, but they make a really big difference. Do you have somebody who can help with the kids there? So, you know, you you, you you start off thinking about a story, then you reach down into the tendrils of, of all the different people who've been working in this area for years and years, all the experts, and then you come back up and you try to tell the story through five or six different women. And then you bring everybody back together in the museum, you have conversations and you try to think of different ways to have conversations and to bring it back out to people. And then if you're lucky and you've got any money, you make a book and that means you get into... You, know, you can do articles in the papers and bring discussions back into the public again. So, so you sort of you go, you you have an idea, you reach down, come back up, tell the stories, and then you go out and tell everybody about it. And uh, and then sometimes little bits of change happen. I mean, we've had bits of change have happened through, through different articles and stories, and that's always really exciting at the end. I went to see um, Rory Stewart when he was prisons minister with um, this book House of the Shadows, and he said, well well, I can see you take the soft approach. So, you know, this is the soft approach to change. He's kind of right. <laughs> that's funny. No, that's really, that's yeah. really brilliant. Man, I wish, uh, I, I've been involved in a, a research project on uh, using photography as a tool to promote um, re- reduction in stigma about breast cancer in Vietnam. And I feel like everything that you're describing about like, um, you know, down to like, what does the exhibition feel like? Like, oh, I wish we could have brought you in as a consultant on it as well, because I think that that would be very useful for our team of mainly researchers to 
to hear. Um, I, I am intending to ask every guest on the podcast what photography ethics means to you or what, what it means to be an ethical photographer. Um, I suppose what it really means is to think through the consequences of every photograph. And what I mean by that is not just the consequences of taking the picture, but the consequences of where you publish the photograph. So I might take a picture of someone and it's going to be very different if I take that picture and pin it up on my board at home to if it goes in The Guardian, if it goes on to BBC Breakfast News, to if that person's are back out in society, if they've been locked up and their picture's seen or their story's told. It's thinking through all the nuances of what it means for the person who's been photographed to have their picture seen by people and in what context it's seen and what those consequences will be. You can hear more from Polly Braden on the 1st of October when she speaks as part of this year's Photography Ethics Symposia, organized by the Photography Ethics Center in partnership with the Royal Photographic Society. Details on how to register are available in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photoethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this podcast, episode number four, are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Jason Houston about collaborative ways of working.